Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. We're talking to extraordinary people about how their traumatic childhoods shaped their lives and careers. Our guest today is a television presenter who's made a career out of creating and finding happy, beautiful homes. She's famous for crafting and quilting, fronting property shows including Location Location and Christmas Spectaculars. But her own childhood was often miserable. We're just going to see Kirsty Alsop at home in Devon, where she's staying with her partner Ben and her children Bay and Oscar, as well as her two stepchildren, Orion and Hal. She's got the most extraordinary house, which is filled with stuffed animals and all sorts of phenomenal paraphernalia. It's really the kind of house that you dream about when you're a child. start on how your lockdown's been because it should be fairly perfect because you are the ultimate crafter and you are brilliant at looking after your house. Well my lockdown started earlier than everyone else's lockdown because we were actually quarantined because Ben had Covid so that it was quite weird to you were, we were just coming to the end of our quarantine period when lockdown happened we were like oh right okay uh, and then um then we started working on the craft show and I was working, working, working. Then I did some more work with Phil and Phil came and lived here and stayed here, which was also, it was fun. So I didn't really get into the full lockdown for about a month in terms of uh, um, the sort of, and then I did all the rooms, cleared out everything, sorted everything out, then I went mad. <laughs> and I, actually everyone's loving all the baking crafting it's all back to those old-fashioned they really are doing a lot of that I think for me I um it turned out that not uh getting up and getting on a train to somewhere and having a chat with the taxi driver and the train conductor and someone on the train and the taxi driver at the other end uh and the person in the queue in Pratt that was a real problem and I had no idea how much and it was very interesting because it wasn't the, my social life as such that I met, it was my daily interactions with people and it took me ages to realise that that was the problem. And I sort of realised it because when I got anyone sort of on the telephone or in a shop or anything, I would just be like jabbering on forever. And I completely realised that that was why I wasn't really enjoying lockdown. Did it feel too 1950s for you? Because in some ways... You do hop back to the 1950s. In some ways, they're incredibly modern. So was I, there a sense that you were being stuck being too much of a housewife? Um, I think lockdown has been harder for women. It definitely has been. And a lot of women have been really shocked by finding that they're at home permanently with their partner. And it, it, things haven't equalised. And um, I definitely think that Ben decided at some point quite early on that he was going to be in charge of sort of certain things but they didn't come anywhere close to 50 percent so you're never going to be a trad wife Uh, whatever the new trend no no i'm no no whatever the new trend is no what i mean i can guarantee you rachel that whatever the new trend is i'm not going to be able to manage to just be part of it i've never managed it to why you are this amazing homemaker because it must go back to some extent to your childhood it goes it goes very um it goes very deep and uh I don't so my mum was a brilliant decorator uh and uh, a fan oh of course they're in the attic why wouldn't they be (laughs) (laughs) so is that the children involved yes 
Can we hear them? Is that a problem? Yeah, okay, sorry. So sorry. That is where they are, isn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. Hello, love. Oh, I'm just nuts. Actually, I've never slept in this room, but people say that complained that have. I mean, anyone complains. They stay up late. Oh, you can hear them. Yes, right? because also here, there's a like that pull down cinema screen is here, and there's oh, speakers. So they're down there watching sort of James Bond or Mission Impossible or something. Okay, so we um, yes talking about your so, childhood, which sounds so, idyllic, really. I think it was, and I probably didn't realise until very recently how idyllic my childhood was and how hard my parents worked to make it that way. My mother was a brilliant decorator and she was fantastically adept at sewing and making things, painting things. When I was small, she was a picture framer and she did these beautiful mounts on the pictures. And then she became a decorator. Um, After she first had cancer, she couldn't um, lean over to do the framing. Um, so she stopped it and became a decorator and was incredibly good at it. But um, she she wasn't a particularly keen cook. Um, and she was sort of... It's it's really funny. The, the, the sort of very drilled down sort of napkins, tablecloths, liking ironing, liking packing and unpacking kind of micro element of my hominess doesn't come from my mum I don't know where that comes from and as a child I used to really enjoy that sort of preparation for a journey and packing things and when I went away to school that sort of whole trunk thing and it really mattered to me that it was all sort of absolutely perfect did you then do your own trunk for school I I Completely did my own. And and I don't want to make my mum sound neglectful. She wasn't at all. But she did always think I was quite strange in that respect. And years later, we had an, one of the most huge rows we ever had was about a tablecloth. And I was nearly 30 by then, earning really quite a lot of money with the property and then with the telly, totally independent. And we were in Italy and we went to this hotel and there was a tablecloth and it was absolutely beautiful. And it was £100, which is a lot of money. It was, even then, it was quite a lot of money. I mean, it was more money then, if you see what I mean. Uh, but she was furious, absolutely furious. She can't buy that. And I said, Mum, I'm completely independent. Who would spend that on a tablecloth? And I, I said, I really like it. I've still got it. And, um, and she just couldn't get her head around it. But when I was 21... And I was looking for my first flat. I was going to shops and buying tea towels like two and putting them in a drawer and waiting till I had my flat. And I'm not sure now that that's normal. No. And when you're at school, did that difference make you stand out? And yes. Was that difficult for you? Uh, I did stand out. And I think if my close girlfriends, I've still got quite a few close girlfriends from my time at Beedells. Um, and they would say that I arrived in skirts with a pink bike. I wasn't particularly pink, you know, but I did have this very girly pink bike and I had this corduroy skirt and these jumpers from Benetton, which had collars and these argyle socks all coordinated. So there'd be a green jumper and a green argyle sock and... The whole thing would, was in this trunk, which was immaculate. And, and what was no one everyone else wearing? 501s, DMs <laughs> and grandfather shirts. And I did look like a freak. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, what, I find it very strange that I didn't want to conform. But I think I was, if, if I'm honest, I was really, really, I adored my mum, absolutely adored of her. I hung off her every word. And she would say, no, darling, the trousers don't suit you. And, um, and I, I just didn't have them. Did you and your <laughs> mum, were, were you and your mum quite similar? Did you look alike in those We days? look very alike. She's very, 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 or she was very, very, very thin. Um, but we do look alike. And scarily, as I get older, I see more and more and more. Not scarily, but uh, my mum was beautiful. But uh, she had the blue eyes and the dark hair. 
it's strange. I think now as I'm, I get older, I think I'm more like my father in character um, than my mum. But definitely I set great store by my mother's opinion. And it really mattered to me for many, many, many years. In fact, obviously until she died, what she thought about things. Mm. And was she quite critical or was she always very positive? Uh, God, that's such a... uh, I think she probably, in her own way, she would say, oh, definitely not critical, positive. But I I think that she was... Yes, as a family, I think we are quite critical and judgmental. And um, uh, and we certainly behind closed doors would would have conversations which I which I don't think are particularly edifying. Um, and I find that I do find that in myself. And um, the phrase judgment is a, you know, it's a very it's a modern phrase that we all use now. It wasn't used then, but yes, I think Mum was. Do you know what? We're all really really observant as a family. That is what my father did. He was in the art world. It was his job to see things in furniture and pictures and recognise things. And we are just a, quite an observant family. And we notice things in in people's dress and in interiors and behaviour. And we do, we are quite critical. So if you walk downstairs say, in the, to go out somewhere and you were wearing something, would your mother say that looks wonderful? Or would she say, oh, darling, do you think she'd she change would, If shoes? she didn't like things, she would uh, certainly say there was no no question of always saying that looked nice. She didn't hold with that. Um, but to say not to wear trousers, they don't suit you, that's uh, quite yes, tough. That, yes, I suppose that is quite tough, but that was just how it was, and that was how it was. Mm. You know, she was, she she would always say, and, I st- and I've said it myself, darling, if you're going to a fancy dress party, wear what suits, not what you think is cool or cool fancy <laughs> dress. Or so It was always, like, it doesn't matter what it says on the invitation, wear what suits you mm. so you know going to a fancy dress party as mr blobby would not <laughs> be her idea was she very worried about her weight I and mean, was she a fattest she was she, she was a, a massive fattest and uh, in fact it's a it's it's across the board in in my family and uh um my mother was yes she came from a, a long line of people very concerned about their weight um and it was a constant thing with her and and literally when she was very very ill she'd ring up and and say you know I've just had some nuts today that's all I've had to eat proudly and you'd think mum you're having chemotherapy or you know she she was very concerned about her weight till the day she died you were sent away to boarding school that must have been really hard wasn't it uh, it was a nightmare and I really weirdly I had a chat literally last week in my dad's garden with my dad about it and we were talking about boarding school and he said but your mum enjoyed it so much and your aunt his sister enjoyed it so much and you know it was a famously nice and cosy school and and I said I know dad I know but I really, really, really hated it. Mm. I hated it. I can still remember the homesickness was so overwhelming. It it was absolutely crippling. The final straw was when there was a girl called Honor whose rabbit died and I went with her to find the rabbit. It disappeared out of its hutch because some people took their pets to this boarding school. And... um, uh, and I went with Honor to find the rabbit, and eventually we found this body of this little white rabbit. And we'd been doing metaphors and similes at school, and I put my arm around, sobbing Honor, and said, "Oh dear, Honor, but don't cry over spilt milk." And she went back in and told everyone I described her rabbit as spilt milk, and no one spoke to me. I was put into quarantine, oh. not quarantine. Um, what's it called? Coventry. 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 Yes. Um, and that must have been devastating. I mean, can you imagine? Because I was only trying to be nice. But obviously, I completely got it wrong. So they just didn't speak to you? I don't know. I mean, it was probably only a few days, but I mean, it felt like, Mm. you know, a lifetime at the time. And I remember thinking, this just, this isn't going to pan out. Weirdly, my brothers-in-law both went to the same boarding school, aged eight, and they both loved it. I've had conversations Mm. with them about it, and I've had to sort of agree not to to talk to them about it. Is that because you loved your home life so much, or...? I just missed everything... 
I missed everything that my food, my bed, my my surroundings, my mum, my dad, my siblings. And how long did it take them to well, realise this and to get you back I think again? They re- it, I, was, I was out of there within a term. And um, I was very lucky because my mother fell pregnant with my sister. And then obviously she was going to have a baby at home. Because I think obviously the plan had been that I would go to boarding school, then my brother would go to boarding school, and then, um, you know less childcare and every you know but once my sister was on my way that all, all changed so my mum said you know you can you can come back home and you I, must I, have been I, desperate for a baby as well oh 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 my god <laughs> I mean that was just the best thing the birth of my sister Sophie was literally the best thing it was just like having a you know I never particularly wanted a dog we had dogs I wasn't particularly interested in them <laughs> I had a series of of, of, of pets that I frankly neglected, if I'm honest. Um, uh, and they all died prematurely. <laughs> but, oh my so God. This is a real-life doll. Oh, it was a real-life doll. It was just the best. You could push her around, you could dress her, you could undress her, you could put her in your pram and put your party coat on and march up and down the drive, which I did a lot. Yeah. My mother was amazing, though. It, you know, it, she said, she's not happy I'm taking her away. And, and it was very disapproved of what my mum did. And someone said to me once oh, you know, you move schools all the time, it wasn't a good idea. And yes, I do think my mother probably at some point should have said, actually, darling, I think sticking this one out might be a good idea. But that <laughs> that first time she took me away was the best thing she ever did. I felt more supported, more understood, more listened to than anything else that ever happened in my life. So how many schools did you go to? Ten. I mean, that were is... you bullied at all of them? No, absolutely not. Okay, no. So some of them were good. No, so I was not, but no, absolutely not. And also, I, I now look back and I think, I was strange, and I didn't want to conform. And while you shouldn't ever blame a child for that, I can see that the thing that now gives me goosebumps about school is the idea of grouping children by age. Right. So you. School, obviously, we know that um, there were how it worked is that there were uh, the great mass of people who lived at home and helped their parents in the house and helped their parents in their businesses, and then at a certain age were apprenticed or took over from a family member at their trade. And then when uh, we moved from an agrarian ag- agricultural society in the main into the industrial revolution came and people moved into cities and initially the children were in the factories and in the mills and the factory owners and the factory mills if they were good to set up schools um it it was the privilege of the rich to be educated you know schools like Eton and Winchester were set up and age 13 instead of being apprenticed you went into school and you had education so it, it was a sort of industrial revolution victorian construct to take children and group them together by age and teach them to read and and we're still we're still doing that we we still haven't come up with a viable system to say well this child is uh you know uh uh is this is its developmental stage and this child is this developmental stage and because we have this system there is huge stigma in not reaching X developmental stage at X point. You know, my birthday is the 31st of August. I went to school um, when I was way too young. I was in the wrong year for the first, um, until I was 10, and then I was moved down a year. Um, uh, but I, I was the eldest child with not great social skills, didn't have a huge amount of older cousins or, you know, older people, children with whom to develop my social skills. I was absolutely king of the hill at home. And then suddenly, bam, hmm. I was at school. Of course I wasn't going to like it because no, I wasn't in charge for a start. And you I were was, a mini adult in some ways. I was, you? Yes, I mean, we've already established I was a <laughs> control freak stroke perfectionist. <laughs> so so you, you're put into an environment with other children who won't do what you tell them to do. So of course they're going to tell you to jump in a lake. I so mean, were there other examples of bullying in other schools apart from so, the no, rabbit? Um, the, it was just, yes, it was general sort of... The, I never had major, major, major physical, you know, bullying that, of the kind that... It was just generally... And I remember one time, one school I was bullied at, and the teacher decided it was a good idea to sit me in the middle of the room and have everyone around and, and, and it, it just so that everyone got a chance to explain why. 
I was so irritating. No, <laughs> yes. no. And, and I'm sure they were, I'm sure I was irritating. I, I what did it feel like? It didn't, it didn't feel, it's not one of my happiest memories. Um, um, it, but, but do you think that's why you have such close friends now that you are very no, aware I of wanting feel, to? No, I feel, I've, I've, I feel I'm not good at friendship. I, I, I get very into my work or what's going on at home. The awful thing is that still to this day, Arning a napkin might come higher on my list than chatting on the phone. If I'm doing something and someone rings, I'm like, I really want to talk to that person, genuinely. But I also do really want to get on with arning this napkin or whatever it is. Right. Do you think with the, with you as well, was the dyslexia a factor? that uh, Did that make you more vulnerable to bullying? I think, uh, I think... I didn't realise until much later in life the full extent of my dyslexia. I just knew that I wasn't that I could understand things, but I wasn't able to translate onto paper what I could understand. I think, and and I sort of gave up. And now I look and think, you know what? I had that ability, and I just, uh, it's a, I I could read, I couldn't read, and then I could read, and then I always read, but the writing was always a problem and and now even I will look I will send an email and I almost never send an email that hasn't got at least three or four missing words did it give you an advantage in some ways do you think being dyslexic oh I wouldn't I would so you've got mean, very good spatial awareness I mean that, I have, that is so, and you must have that for your I, decorating so, and for your houses and when you see you in location location you're looking at houses in a way that other people aren't aren't you I and mean, that must have some sort of resonance with I never being dyslexic. I'd never say you know, being a, a woman, be a British woman of a certain age, saying I'm really good at something does not come naturally. Um, I am spectacularly good at spatial awareness. I can I can park a car. I can see if I can get the car into the space, and I can get it absolutely into the space. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you were talking about driving and your parallel parking, that sort of goes back to one of the worst days it must have been in your life when you went for your driving test. And just before you went for the test, your mother told me that she found a lump, didn't she? Yes, so she... I didn't know that my grandmother's initial cancer had been breast cancer. I don't know how I'd missed that. I knew that my grandmother had died of, of a cancer when my mother was 26, I suppose. I was about, a bit later than that. I was about three or four. I remember my grandmother, but not particularly. Anyway, she had died of cancer and she'd had cancer on and off for quite a while. And that was very much a part of my mother's uh, sort of late teens, early childhood early 20s and um I uh so I didn't know that my mother was nervous about it but anyway she was and she found a lamp and she came in to tell me and she said tomorrow dad and I are going to the cedar house which was our house in the country because I might not be going for a while I just want to pick up some stuff and see the house and she said I'm really sorry um uh, I won't be here for your driving test. And they left early. And I, when I woke up, there were two pillows, absolutely beautiful, embroidered square pillows, which my mum had bought me for a consolation present because she was informed by my driving instructor that I was going to fail my driving <laughs> test. 
And one of the first calls she made when she came round from her operation, which then happened on the Saturday, was to ring the driving instructor and say, you promised me she'd fail. She's now driving my other three children around London and I am in hospital. <laughs> so you passed. That was so I passed. Amazing. I passed and it was awful because I didn't care. Right. So I wanted to drive so badly. It was all I wanted was to have, again, the control free, mm. to have my own car, to be able to drive around, to be in control. I wanted to drive from... It was the two most dominant things I remember, wanting a baby and wanting to drive. Mm. And uh, and I didn't care at all about my test. Didn't, couldn't have given a monkey's. And then um, she, uh, she then uh, had the operation and that was a lumpectomy um and then something occurred a few months later which uh meant that she had to have complete uh mastectomy hysterectomy everything and so um and then chemotherapy so so the period between me turning 17 in the august so this was in the january that this happened so that whole year uh was sort of and I think looking back on it the fear was very 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 intense because in those days if you were 41 and you got breast cancer that was not good Mm. it just wasn't Mm. it it, it wasn't your your chances were not good um and we knew that everybody knew that and also cancer was much more the big c then than it is now it was it was terrifying there were these films on telly about it. You know, uh, there were sort of f- films about people. Well, do you remember Terms of Endearment? Mm. And, and there were, fil- you know, and, and it was just, there was a lot of th- stuff about it. About, you know, if you got cancer, you died. Mm. And did I, you have to shield your siblings as well then? Because they were um, much younger, weren't they? We didn't tell my siblings. So Natasha was two and Sophie was seven. And then we didn't tell them. And then Sophie, uh, the school rang up and said that Sophie had bit someone right through their jumper and drawn blood and could mum come and pick her up? Because that wasn't acceptable behaviour and she was being suspended for the day. And mum went and picked her up and said, what on earth happened? And she said, uh, well, they were playing this game in the playground and you got cancer. It was like a chase game <gasps> and they would... Say, you know, run up and touch the person and say, you've got cancer. We didn't know that Sophie knew about mum's cancer because we kept it as a secret. But uh, she, she obviously knew. She'd heard this word. Right. She knew it. Anyway, the girl who ran up to her and said, you've got cancer, unfortunately got <laughs> more than she bargained for. <laughs> anyway, so mum, classic mum, was didn't make it home with my sister. She spun around, marched straight back to the school and said, if you're idiotic enough to allow the children to play these games in the playground, it's not surprising Sophie gets mm. someone. She was very good at defending um, her children in that way. She was really great like that. But you must have had to look after your younger I, siblings no, a lot, I, yes, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, I did. My, I, my, we just come to London. We'd only just moved to London. My parents had only recently moved to London because I was brought up that my parents spent... My dad was in London for the main during the week. Then he'd come home at the weekends, and my mum would go to London to join him. Uh, and I had I had been at Beedles. I'd left. Um, I was at a, a day school in London. I'd had my first term. I was in my second term, and uh, we uh, we we had a new housekeeper. Who my mother did most of the childcare. We had a housekeeper. She left. She just arrived and she said, well, my mum got ill. She said, I wasn't up for this. I didn't sign up for this and left. And my dad was in shock, I think. He went to work every day and came home every day and functioned. But I think he was in complete shock. So did you take over then? So, I mean, when so everyone else was sort of I partying initially, or drinking or smoking, were you at home looking after I them? was at home, but it's. I now know that I probably would have been anyway. So... <laughs> When I was younger, I used to say, well, you know, I didn't take drugs because my mum got very ill when I was 17, and that's why. Actually, that's bollocks. (laughs) I I, I now know that, and I I wouldn't ever want to put my overweening sensibleness on my mum's shoulders. (laughs) I have definitely got less sensible as I've got older. Um, And uh, and 
when I was 17, I was. I just was. I was, you know, I, I wasn't a rule breaker. I was not conventional, but I wasn't a rule breaker. And so, and I don't think that would have... I think probably, yes, I did look after my sisters. Yes, I was super responsible. I did... I went to the nursery that my sister attended and I said, look, you've got to give her a morning place, not an afternoon place because I go to school in the mornings and I can't look after her. Um, and But my mum got out of hospital quite soon and I think I... Re- <laughs> like, so awful. I found a sort of diary the other day. You know how you start diaries. And it was a suggestion for my sister's daily routine, which I had submitted to my mum. <laughs> Aged what? <laughs> Age 17. And how old was your sister? Uh, uh, seven. <laughs> I mean, so I think that my and poor mother... was involved in the daily Well, routine? it was just like she should do this and then do this and do this and go to bed at this time and do this much reading and everything. And so I think my poor mother came out of hospital, had the radiotherapy... And discovered she was living in a house with a sort of bossy monster. And uh, and she then decided it'd be a good idea for me to go to school in Oxford. And I think that's because she was worried. I was at home all the time. I was far more interested in my sisters than I was in my social life. I was overly domestic. I think she was terrified, you know. And, and I just was that sort of person who... Why would I have been sitting writing out what my sisters <laughs> should do every day? It's an amazing role reversal, though. So you're, um, you're starting to look after your yes, parents. Yes, you start really. to look after your parent, and that probably never changes. And I think there was probably a real wrangle between me and my mum about that. Um, and did you remember crying at all? Your father crying, or any of I, you actually being? No, I don't. Very emotional. My, Were you very British about it? I don't remember my father try, crying until the cat died, and then. So very British. Very British. Yes, and so completely losing. The plot when the cat died. What about you? Uh, I am uh, one of those people who will cry in the films mm-hmm. or ads. But would um, you cry for your mother when you were that age, do you think? Uh, I remember once my mother had a test that was quite an important test because the, her cancer journey went on for a long time and there were real highs and lows and troughs and everything. And there was one time when... Uh, she got some good news, which we were expecting to be very bad news. And it was a Friday and I came rushing home. And at that time, I lived in the basement of my parents' house. I'd left home, had my own flat. Then my parents had bought this house, which had a flat in the basement. And I'd sold my flat and moved back in. And I came home and mum had gone. She'd gone to the country. It was a Friday. And she, I rang her and I said, I can't believe you didn't wait to see me before you went. You know, I really wanted to see you. And she said, this is my news. This is my cancer. And when I had the telly and people started asking me about cancer, she did say, mum, she said, after I die, you can talk about the cancer as much as you want. I want you to raise awareness of it. I want people to understand it. I want it, you know, but until I die, you aren't to. And did she never raise it then? I was talking to my dad about this. And he said, when she was told she had three months to live, he reckons that one of the best things he did was ban the doctors from telling her that. She lived for another nine years. But having all sorts of treatments. But very odd for you as well, having to live for so long with the sense that your mother may die at any time. Yes, and she did use it. She, uh, she, <laughs> she completely used it. In what um, way? If you don't do the washing up. <laughs> no, not if you... But she rang me up, darling, you've got to say, Daddy, not to go on his, his painting course. Why, Mum? Well, there's this one holiday. As you know, it could be our last holiday. <laughs> and um, uh, and um, I was like, but Mum, Dad really loves his painting course. I know, but he can do his painting course next year. Um, and it, she she did. She there were there was quite a lot of last holidays and last Christmases, <laughs> and I wouldn't you know dream. And definitely for the last few years, we I didn't book ahead, and calculations were made about whether. I would do things. I would always check the holiday insurance to see if my mum was going to die. You know, what would happen? Could I cancel it? So you must be on edge the whole time, sort of fight or flight mode. I think probably you were, we were, but you get used to it. Mm. There was a definite fight or flight mode. And I think that all of her children 
we all got if I if I'm completely honest and I really hate saying things like this because I know if my mother were alive and god forbid there's a heaven and she's listening to me I am dead I mean <laughs> dead dead You're dead yeah. <laughs> she's gonna kill me but but she we didn't do our own thing to the extent that we perhaps should or maybe that's me I don't know I I can't necessarily speak for my siblings in what way though well I nobody wanted to be the one to to sort of sort of upset mum I mean we did all in our own ways do things that upset mum but there was a general I don't think the rebelling thing happened as much as it should have happened so just at that stage we all kind of they say that families lock into a certain age so when when things happen your your family is kind of set at the positions you were when that trauma happened and I definitely think that we didn't uh I don't know. My brother did. He travelled and went away a lot. Um, uh, but it wasn't... I was always nerves about it. Um, and and my mother was nervous, I think, herself. So there were certain things she probably... should. I, I remember once saying, why hadn't she clamped down on my sister about something? And she was like, oh, no, darling, I can't because of being ill. And I daren't. And, and did you, know, you feel that you needed to find a partner, have children, so she could have grandchildren. Was there a sense that she wanted you no. to speed everything up at all? She she, she was not a great one for grandchildren. Although, again, if I'm <laughs> saying that in public, I'm, I am, you know, if there's a heaven, it's not going to be much fun for me. That's all I can say. But, mm. but no, she absolutely adored her children, completely loved her children with a complete passion. But early on, she did say, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about grandchildren because, you know, I love my children, but they won't really be my children. And then, of course, when I was pregnant... I reminded her of that. I never said that. I never, <laughs> ever, ever said that. But to be honest, she wasn't. She wasn't the world's best grandmother. And now I totally understand why that was. She was very, very, very nervous. She loved her children with such a passion. And then her children had these things that they loved. And she was terrified. She was... She, you get to an age... Some people, when they age, they get more anxious. And she did get more anxious. And she found looking after her grandchildren very nerve-wracking that something would happen did it affect your approach to your career did it make you want to succeed more stand on your own two feet more did it affect your choice not to go to university um I didn't go to university because my mother thought if you didn't go to Oxford there wasn't any point in going to university she had a very, very old-fashioned view on university and women in university, and I have only come to realise that now. So do you um, regret that now? No, it's the weirdest thing. I can't... I, I know I should, but I lived in Oxford with students in the year before I didn't go to university, and I really hated it. I just hated it. Mm. I, I meant to stay with some friends of mine one time when I'd started work, and they were all at university. Um... And I woke up earlier than everyone else because obviously I was used to waking up and going to work and I tidied up the house and I threw away some dope. Because to me, if you shake a matchbox and it doesn't rattle with matches, it's empty and it goes in the bin. I don't know that there's a, you know. <laughs> and um, and I just, I, I, I don't think, I, I just don't think I'd have particularly enjoyed it. Mm. Now I think I would love it because I'd, I'd go for the sake of learning. Mm. And you'd have hated the experience. I mean, you wanted hate... your flat at 21, I wanted my you? flat. I wanted my flat. And had I gone to university, my room would have been... Immaculate. Immaculate. <laughs> and with I'd have brought my own duvets and pillows. I'd have had a bedspread. <laughs> it would have had curtains. It would have been freakish. <laughs> and any man who had come home to my, my room at university would have been really freaked out most of them were freaked out when they came home to my flat in their 20s never mind at university I and mean, can you imagine you're at university there's this house it's got five people living in it and there's this one room that <coughs> it would have been really weird and your first boyfriends were they older than you then or they weren't were they? they weren't i thought you went out with dominic cummings at one point Rachel, is that true not allowed to say oh. that <laughs> causes chaos um uh well, I don't, i'm not sure he'd have liked the lace pillows though would he <laughs> um that 
no, the, it, it was awful, actually. My romantic life in my 20s was just virtually non-existent. And is that because you preferred folding napkins to no, going out with men? No, it's because you just... I wanted to get married and have babies so badly, it was written all over me. Yeah. I mean, literally written all over me. Did you I'm, discuss it on first dates? I'm, I must have had a sign above my head which said, you know, I want a baby, please marry me. <laughs> it was just awful, just awful. And I would, you know, someone would ask me on, uh, out on a date and I'd say, why don't you come around and I'll cook you shepherd's pie? <laughs> you know, it's, it's Did you have baby names already? No, weirdly not. I wasn't... I, wa- I was quite... I. I was brought up in a, you know, nuclear family. I, I was very focused on a baby needed a dad. Although, weirdly, by the time I met Ben, I had definitely made my plan of having my baby by myself. So by the time I got into my 30s, the whole thing had been planned out. I was like, if I get to this date and I haven't met the right man, there was no... So question. what age were you going to have to be? Well, because of the breast cancer history in my family and because I fully understood about fertility and everything, I wasn't going to push it much past about 32. Right. And how were you going to find the sperm donor? I'd already asked a few people. Oh, is he okay? (laughs) And they said yes. identified it. Yes, so I, yes, yeah. And how had you chosen them? Uh, By their niceness. You know, so I just, not so their looks or their no, or intelligence or no no it was like someone who well it's quite a thing to ask someone so you basically it's you're starting with a small group um so it was you know people who were gay and 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 might want a child or someone who was uh you know had was committed to never getting married uh um and something like that but there were three of them um uh, and they'd all and said yes they had all, all said yes and yes. they all had to be disappointed uh, no, I don't think they were in the least disappointed. I think they were absolutely <laughs> terrified when I asked. And when faced with that question, weren't capable of saying no. Had I actually got to that age and then asked them to follow through on their um, on the request, I'm not sure they would have jumped at it. So were they incredibly relieved when you <laughs> met Ben? I think, I think probably, yes. Whenever and you haven't anything. actually got married, have you? Wish? No, we haven't got married. And is that on... Because you were married well, so and we, babies. So... so so he said, I think the first time we met or the second time we met, but literally probably second or third date, he said, I'm never marrying again, by the way. And what did you feel when he said I that? I thought that was very forward, to be honest. <laughs> very forward. Um, uh, I, and I was a bit like, well, you know, this is our second or whatever. You know, I was just like, I thought it was odd. Do you think he picked up you were looking for marriage and babies? Oh, he did, yes. Because everyone else had picked that up. Um, but did you get a ring or anything then? I did. I had a spectacular, most beautiful ring, which I managed to lose. But I've got loads of rings. I've got this ring, which I got for 10 years together, which is he uh, designed, which is the two of us. It That's represents beautiful. the two of us. So, no, he's absolutely the most committed person on the planet. I've never had any doubts. And I knew because I, because I knew how much he loved his children that he would never have children with someone he wasn't. The fact that he was prepared to plan a child with me was the biggest indication of his commitment by far, beyond anything else. But did you ever plan your wedding? Were you one of those sort of people? Yes, not? as a child, I would draw wedding dresses in school. But only the dress... And maybe I would think about bridesmaids and and how my sisters would make nice bridesmaids. But I was never a kind of wedding obsessive. And by the time I met Ben, I had been to enough weddings and seen enough disasters and known enough failed marriages to know that I really hated weddings. I deve- My mother had a pathological loathing of weddings. And funerals, didn't she? And funerals, yes. Yep. Uh, really, she didn't like... Uh, she didn't like displays of... She was much more unconventional than I think I probably ever realised. She didn't like sort of those kind of things. She, did, she didn't like insincerity. She didn't like people turning up to celebrate the wedding of a couple they barely knew. She never went to the weddings of children of her friends unless she felt she knew that child really well. A couple of really glamorous weddings she was invited to. And I was like, Mum? <laughs> nope. I don't know that person's child. But she also planned her own funeral, didn't she? She planned her own funeral down to the last dot and the last comma. And she was buried in the garden at home. Uh, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, uh, Did she tell you what she wanted to happen? Yes. So, so, well, we knew there were very 
definite plans. And she was getting iller and iller and she made dad measure the Volvo to see if her her coffin would fit in it. And she, she got could... her own coffin? Yes. So it was Chris so my sister went into the attic to get the Christmas decorations and came down swearing blue murder and furious with my mother obviously upset but furious because the coffin was in the attic <gasps> it was this wicker coffin and, and my and my mother hadn't warned my sister so and she by, had just bought it yeah she ordered it online and she we you know we knew she was dying obviously but it was a shock for my sister to go up the ladder into the attic and find that coffin just sitting there horrible and she came down and got very cross with my mum and my mum said I'm so sorry darling completely because it was up there <laughs> um and then uh she had the hole dug in the garden and it was then that very, very, very wet Christmas. Um, and so it filled with water and it was like a sort of plunge pool. Um, so she had the hole dug she before the she dog. died? Yes. Yeah, the whole was it near the horse? Was that right? She wanted initially to be buried over Benji, the pony, but then I think there was a problem because there was just pony bones and it became clear that that was <laughs> And why Benji rather than any other uh, pony? Benji was a pony that we were all incredibly fond of and he lived for a very long time and we loved him. He was a small Shetland pony, almost like a house pet. And um, so she wasn't buried over Benji, she was buried near Benji. I was the one who had to ring up and get the various permissions. It turns out you don't need permission. As long as it's not near a water source, you can be buried anywhere you want. But it took ages because no one knows this. Mm. Um, then she died during this extraordinary flood. So my, my dad rang me on New Year's Day and said, I think mum is getting ill. So, so on Boxing Day, she came here, had lunch, sat in the dining room, able to sit up, then sat on the sofa and said, um, she said, you know, love, I'm really tired. Um, do you mind? Then I just said, no, I don't mind at all. And did you know exactly what she was talking yeah, about? Yeah, totally knew what she was talking about. And it was extraordinary because she managed to die at the time when we were all in the UK. None of us were missing out on... I mean, she literally died sort of extraordinarily conveniently. Do you and, think she almost held Oh, God, yes. She held, held off. She completely held off. And the whole thing was very dark, and I can describe it in a completely humorous way. And we, you know, we we are all capable of doing that. And you, you could, I could write it up and it could be very, very funny. Um, it, it was just fantastically dark and British. And when you relay it, you can make it very funny. It it, it wasn't much fun. Mm. You, you don't, I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I don't, I think there's a reason that we, ha- that we hand over the bodies of people we love to people who are specialists in that field. So it's did not... you actually have to put her in the coffin? Then? We did, yes. And it, and we mistimed it. Um, f- uh, so uh, the coffin was being dressed with flowers. My my father has a lovely gardener and she was wanted my mother's coffin to look beautiful. So it came down from the attic. We put the flowers on it. But by the time we came to put my mum in it, we were kind to dress my mum in the clothes that, that we'd picked out... We couldn't get her into them. So then we had to choose something else. Um, and it was just, it was just awful, mm-hmm. you know. But we did, she was in the coffin. And then, uh, then we, uh, then, then she stayed overnight in the house. And, and did then, you stay with her then in the no, coffin? No, I went back to London to get her passport, which was in London, and to get huge amounts of lilies, which were, so we drove, I picked up all these lilies and I drove back still can't bear the smell of lilies, drove back the next morning and my aunt and uncle came over. My aunt and my mother's cousin, who she was very close to, were both there when she died. And then and then we, she was put on the tractor, on the trailer on the back of the tractor and driven up the garden. And uh, it was it was carnage because there was, everyone was wearing their wellies, so everyone had their smart clothes on, but the mud was knee deep and mm. everyone had their wellies Was on. it still flooded the hole? It was still definitely water in the hole. And um, and then my, we're walking up behind my mum's coffin and I see my sister's then boyfriend and my brother-in-law running back in their wellies and their suits across the field. And I was like, what's going on? And Ben said, I told them. I said, what are you talking about? Anyway, what we'd all forgotten is that when you uh, bury someone, you rest the coffin and you can't put it on the muddy ground next to the coffin. You rest it on 
sort of strips of wood suspended over the coffin. Again, that's usually done by the professionals. Yes. Um, so my brothers-in-law and my sister's boyfriend were running across the field back to the garage to try and find some two-by-fours to put across the grave. I mean, you couldn't write it. Mm. And then... Oh, we, all in the rain. All in the pouring rain and the whole thing. And then so then we... Then we 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 buried my mum exactly as she'd requested. And do you know what it was all about? It was about no fuss. Right. She didn't <laughs> want to inconvenience anybody. And do you still go back to the garden and go and see your mother? No, I don't like going up there. So I now, since lockdown, I've obviously visited my father and sat in the garden with him Um and walked around the garden with him. And I'm coming much more now to appreciate my father's garden and his passion for it, much more than I ever did before. Um, I think I was jealous of the garden. Um, and I, w- I knew I sort of felt I wish he'd focus more on his grandchildren than he did on his garden. But now I completely get the passion for the garden. I understand it. Um, but I don't like going up to... Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, not a burial person. I want to be cremated and I would like... God forbid that anything happened to anyone in my family. I would, I'm, my father-in-law was cremated and I hadn't really come across it before, but I think it's, it's amazing. And where would you have your ashes scattered? Well, in about 10 different places. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would have my, I, I'd basically, my poor family would be going, but I wouldn't leave instructions. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't leave any, I would, I, I would only, I would leave no instructions except to say, I'd like to be cremated. That's it. And then I would leave, you know, I I think everyone should write down and say, do whatever you want. Do what suits you. Um, Because I think that it is a little bit of a tyranny feeling that someone, that someone has left these very strong instructions which you must Mm. adhere to. Do you feel frightened that you might get it because no. it's a genetic no absolutely thing, isn't not it? i don't Your feel sister's had a mastectomy my sister has had a preventative mastectomy and why didn't you want to do that the honest answer to that is that i just don't they've never found our gene so they think there's a gene because my mother had it her cousin had it, various other family members have had it, so they think there's a gene, but it's not one that is yet recognised. And as yet, we we don't know. There's so many unknowns about cancer, but I do think that that surgery is so major that there's a possibility that it could upset your equilibrium in other ways. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds so like sort of bad science, but... It is major surgery and I saw my sister go through it and in her case it went wrong and it had to be redone and something went wrong during the operation and it was really, really painful and traumatic and horrid for her. She is immensely glad she's done it. She really worried about it. She's pleased she's done it and I'm really happy for her that that was what she, that she was able to do it and the people at the Marsden wouldn't have done it unless they thought there was a very good reason for doing it. You don't get preventive mastectomies unless Mm. the geneticists think that there's a good reason for Mm. doing it. But in my case, I haven't done it. Also, I'm older. I'd had two children by the time it was a possibility. Um, You know, I'm much older now than I was when my mother first got ill. I don't... They know more now about breast density. I have the sort of type of breasts which are less prone to breast cancer. Loads of different things. Um, But I don't worry about it. I don't worry about illness I don't worry about death I I don't know why I think there might be something wrong with me <laughs> but do you think it spurred you on though having your mother being ill that long did it change your life yes do you think it, it absolutely did there's no doubt about it that having something in your life where you are from an early age worrying about someone else is probably a positive uh, uh, you aren't teenagers by their very nature and people in their early 20s can be very self-centered and self-absorbed and I think for me there was something really positive about that not being a possible so much of a possibility I'm not saying I wasn't a hellish teenager and quite tricky and difficult in loads of ways but there comes a point when you have someone who is ill in your family where 
you have to focus on something else. And the, there were periods of time when my mother had her operations, when she, she had periods. She was, it turned out she was allergic to pre-meds and they caused the most terrible um, hallucinations. So there were a couple of times when she had very bad days mentally, which we later discovered were as a result of the, her being allergic to morphine. Um, all of those things. And being in hospitals, seeing someone who's had... New, I mean, she had numerous procedures and operations. The number of sort of world events I saw in hospital with my mum. Mm. Not, not my... I don't think my life was significantly changed necessarily in the path I might have otherwise taken. It would be ridiculous to say that I would have been a sort of, you know, explorer or climbed Everest or something if my mum didn't act fancy. But you, you have got something else to worry about. And do you think it also gives you a sort of sense of urgency because you know life could be short? Yes. I think I think I judge risk differently and I think particularly during the covid crisis I felt that I am able I know how many people die from cancer and I know mm. how many people die from covid and I know which is the greater. And I know I've always known there were risks in life. There there are risks that you will catch things. You know, uh, there are risks that something will shorten your life and my mum was 66 when she died so I'm afraid in our family we've always had a thing of if you make 80 or 85 or 90 you're bloody lucky and that's really old bones and and that's not a particularly good thing to think like that but we do definitely think like that in our family Um, what would you say now though to your 17 year old self when you first got the news about your mother, would you say it's all going to be okay? Or um, I, uh, I don't know what would re- have reassured my seventeen-year-old self because uh, I think if you'd said to my seventeen-year-old self, "This is going to go on, on and off, on a sort of roller coaster for twenty odd years, and you're never really going to know." I think that that probably wouldn't have been wildly reassuring. Um, I think that is one of the problems about cancer. There's one of the really, really, really difficult things about cancer is once you've had it once, there are some cancers which the recovery rates are absolutely spectacular and you get it and they get rid of it and you never get it again. But once you've had cancer, there is always a spectre there of it coming back and recovery rates from secondary cancers are lower much lower than recovery rates from primary cancers now my mum extraordinarily enough had two primary cancers so she had two primary breast cancers which is almost unheard of do you think it changed your character i i I think that it probably i don't know whether it changed my character i think I, i was pretty set on the path that i was on but i think that it changed my outlook more than my character. I think it changed my outlook. I think it made me judge what, what happiness is, uh, how to find happiness, what I truly, truly, truly passionately believe that you cannot find happiness without doing things for other people. I just, I don't think there's such a thing as that that is, and I found it, I have found it a struggle during lockdown that, that, not working and not communicating with other people, not thinking about other people, having huge amounts of time alone with my own thoughts. I think probably the fact that I never, ever go a moment in silence is not necessarily healthy. So I cannot be in silence, ever. So whether that's Radio 4 or watching a movie or a podcast or an audiobook, I don't do, ever do silence. Mm. Um, and, uh, so you have to keep busy. I have to keep, I have to keep busy. Kirsty, thank you very much. We've taken up quite a lot of your time this I'm afternoon. Just rabbit it on. That was the most extraordinary interview, wasn't it? It's the idea that she spent so long living with her mother about to die really Mm. so it wasn't that her mother died when she was 17 it was that her mother survived for so long after she was 17 but she must have always been fearful that she was about to die
And there's something about wanting to create a safe home environment. She talks about wanting to nest, and that's why she got into property mm. and homemaking. Yes, um, location, location, location is really all about finding people the perfect home, which is what she obviously wanted to do for herself, but also for the whole nation. Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmont. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 